Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Once you're there, stand with me, and then we're going to go through our text this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I, indeed, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they, may also, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for... If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and what an incredible set of passages we have today. God, we ask you to just clear our hearts and minds of anything that would distract us from your voice this morning. Lord, we want to hear from you. We ask you that you would directly penetrate our hearts in a way that we would not leave the same people. The prayer over and over and over is make me more like Jesus. And yet we know that takes a partnership on our end, Lord, to not only be willing to hear what you say, but also to be willing to do. So will you come by your spirit this morning? Speak directly to us, God. Change our lives. We thank you for, for allowing us the privilege to worship, to serve, and, to, and we give you honor and glory today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Have you ever wondered, like, what is the purpose of my life after I'm saved? Have you ever questioned that? Like, why am I still here, God? Like, just, why didn't you just rapture me out the moment that I accepted Christ? Why do I exist right now? What is my purpose? Many folks miss the importance of their life after salvation. But what if I told you this morning that your purpose doesn't even begin until you're saved? What if I told you your life, and I don't, I hope this isn't a news flash, but what if I told you your life was meaningless prior to salvation? That's a tough pill to swallow, but nevertheless, that's the truth. Our life has no meaning and value outside of Christ. The only thing that can happen to a person who is outside of Christ is condemnation and judgment. There is no purpose. However, when you become saved, when the Lord, when you're born again, when the Lord redeems your soul, he blows that life that was taken out of us in the Garden of Eden, he blows that life back into us, so we were dead, now we're alive. Now we have purpose. Now God has, uh, you know, has given us breath, and that breath is meaningful. There's something that God wants to do in our lives. So many people miss the importance 
of life after salvation. I want to tell you this morning that if your, if your sort of mindset when it comes to being saved is you're just waiting for heaven and you're going to enjoy as much of this life as you can, I'm going to say that you're missing it. And it's not that we shouldn't enjoy life and it's not that we shouldn't try and suck the sap out of every day that we have or anything like that. We should. We should enjoy life. We should, we should love what the Lord is doing in our lives. But that's not our purpose. We're not sitting at the bus stop waiting for the bus to heaven to come take us home. And in fact, we have a far greater purpose than that. Jesus tells us himself what his purpose was. When he came from heaven to earth, he tells us in Luke chapter 19, verses 9 through 10, he said, this is his very purpose. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus didn't come down to earth to have an earthly experience, although he did. Jesus didn't come down to earth to have a face-to-face -face conversation with people, although he did. Jesus came to earth to seek and save the lost. That was his purpose. He goes on in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. Uh, he, he he's speaking to the religious leaders. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then he tells us his purpose. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Aren't you thankful that Jesus came to call sinners and not the righteous? Because outside of Christ, there is no righteous. There is no righteous. You cannot be righteous. Those who he was speaking to in this situation thought that they were righteous in their own works. They thought by doing all these different things that they were following the law, you know, so meticulously and they were so far off. They were so far off. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. They were dead people. And yet they thought that they had life. And Jesus says, man, I didn't come to call the righteous because there are none. I came to call sinners. And man, I am so thankful for that. And you know what? Jesus did not ascend to heaven until he fulfilled his purpose. He didn't go to heaven until he fully, uh, you know, did what he came to do to seek and save the lost. And that's exactly what he did. In his 33 or so years of his life, he, in really the last three years of his life, primarily, he set out to seek and save the lost. And his purpose was fulfilled by way of the cross and then by way of the resurrection. That became the door. That became the roadmap to the God. That became the way that we are reconciled back to the Father. That was his purpose. Do you think that his, his disciples have the same purpose? Do you think that God is calling, you know, Jesus is calling his disciples, his learners, those who are following him, to the same purpose? That's exactly what he's calling us to. And in fact, the Great Commission, we've been talking about it for the past like three weeks. 
The Great Commission is really the purpose for the believer after we're saved. You know, that's our purpose. That's what we're called to. And that manifests itself in a whole bunch of different ways. But here's what our purpose is in living this life after we're saved. Therefore, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is your purpose. If you're struggling with your purpose today, start there. That is your purpose. We all have the same purpose. Jesus had one purpose, to seek and save the lost. The church of Jesus Christ has one purpose, to seek and save the lost. And of course, there's multiple other things that God is doing in our lives, but the primary thing, the primary thing that he wants to do through his church is save lost people. He wants lost people to know about the hope that is available through Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that he chose you, that he chose me, to live in this era, in this day, with all of the things going on in our world today, isn't it interesting that he chose you to be here to fulfill your purpose, which is to seek and save the lost? That's why in our church, our, our sort of vision is to go, grow, and give, or to grow, go, and give. Listen, it starts with growth. You can't go until you grow. And so our, our mission statement then is all about growth. It comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. We exist to equip the saints for ministry, maturity, unity, and the building up of the body of the saints in terms of multiplication of us going out and sharing our faith with people, making disciples, like Jesus said in the Great Commission. We have to grow in order to go. If you're not growing, you won't be going. And you certainly won't be giving. Right? When we give to the Lord, that is a direct result of our growth. Listen, when I first got saved, that was probably the biggest hindrance I had. Not growing up in a religious home, didn't go to church or anything, but I knew one thing. All the church wanted was my money. That's what I knew as an unbeliever walking into a building. And in fact, the, the churches, the few churches that I did go to, that's the message I heard. And so the, the enemy continues to use that stigma in our culture today about all the church cares about is your money. And, and that's not true. That's why we don't pass a plate. That's why we don't talk about money. We set a box in the back and say that's between you and the Lord. And that's New Testament biblical, you know, giving. You don't give by compulsion. You give because you want to give. You give because you're growing in the Lord and you understand it. It is a command. It is a command to give. But what you give is a direct result of your growth in Jesus Christ. As you're maturing in the Lord, you're going to want to give more and more and more. And I'll tell you what, there was a time in my life where all of a sudden it was my joy to write a check to Jesus, man. It was my joy to write a check. I love doing that. But that was a result of growing. Right? Our mission is to, to point everyone on, on the, the very mission that Jesus gave all of us, and that is to, to go into all the world and make disciples. And you have to grow to do that. That is the purpose of the church. We, we gather, some say, to scatter. That's the point. 
We come together. We encourage each other. We build each other up. We learn a little bit more about the Lord. This shouldn't be the only way that we're learning about the Lord, but this is a way that we learn about the Lord, the way we encourage one another. We, we utilize our gifts to benefit one another, and then we leave here charged to fulfill our purpose. That is the point of our gathering. He's the center of it. It's all about Him, and, it, and it's about us getting our eyes aligned with Him so that we can fulfill our purpose. When I was reading this text this week, all I could think about is the Apostle Paul saying, this is my purpose. And, and verse 10 stuck out in my mind, and I, it just, I could not get past it. I could have went a hundred different directions in this passage, but, but in my heart... What I think Paul is saying to Timothy is here, you need to live for the lost, Timothy. You need to be living for the lost. Why do I say that? Listen to what he says in verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is saying everything that he does, everything that he endures, all of the hardship, all of the suffering, everything he does, he does for the sake of the lost. Well, wait a second. Shouldn't it be for the sake of the Lord? Let me tell you something. If you're living for the sake of the lost, you are living for the sake of the Lord. The Lord loves lost people. That's why he came. And as I was reading this text, I was thinking, this is all about Paul passing down the heart of Jesus that says, Timothy, you have to love lost people. You can't put yourself in a Christian bubble with Christian friends and listen to Christian things and never ever be able to relate to somebody who's outside of that bubble. You have to have such a love and a passion for the lost that you're willing to step in and get yourself dirty like Jesus did to fulfill your purpose. This is heavy and awesome all at the same time because what Paul is telling Timothy is a direct, uh, has, a, has direct reflection in the legacy that he's leaving. Everything I do I do for the sake of the elect, those whom God has chosen. Who are those? I don't know. Go out there and find out who they are. You go out there and you talk to everyone that you can about Jesus and you'll find out who those people are. Remember, we love him because he first loved us. Right? God is doing such work in the background of people's lives and we get just a tiny glimpse. We get the actual privilege to step into somebody's life in a moment and share a word with them that Jesus has already prepared, that he's already, the circumstances that have gone on in their lives, he's already pricked their ears to hear it. And you have the privilege to be the deliverer of that message. That, my friends, is worth living for. That is the greatest privilege that you can have on earth. And the, the greatest calling that you can have on earth is that of carrying the gospel message to lost people because that is eternal. Everything else is temporal. You have the most privileged position in all of the world being a follower of Jesus Christ. But 
You must live the way that he wants you to live. You have to be, your heart has to be full of his purpose, which is to seek and save the lost. Why does God need you? That's a great question. Does God really need me? Not really. God is needless. And yet, God has chosen to spread the gospel message through you and I. Through broken vessels, right? He, he, takes, he takes broken people, he makes them whole, and then he sends them back out to tell other broken people how they can be, be made whole. Greg Laurie says, I'm just a beggar trying to show another beggar where to get some bread. Listen, it's a privilege. Paul gave us an indication uh, of God giving us this privilege in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've not, never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You and I today are direct recipients of someone living out their purpose and sharing the gospel with you, whether it was your parents or somebody in your church or somebody was on mission, somebody was living out their purpose and God used them in your life to share your need for Jesus Christ. And now God says, the baton's been passed to you, now you go do the same. How else are they going to hear? Could God not just materialize and say, you guys need me? Of course he could. Couldn't God just pop, you know, a, a legion of angels out in front of you and just say, bow your knee to Jesus? Of course he could. But you know, there's some sort of mystery there of why God chooses to do it the way that he does it in, in, in that he uses you and I. And it's multifaceted, and I don't think we could ever get to the bottom of it. But God is doing incredible work in you at the same time, he's doing incredible work in somebody else that you're sharing with. You miss out on incredible, um, you know, blessing in your life when you don't share the gospel. Somebody else will not miss out. God will send somebody else. You miss out. You miss out. Our, our, our focus, our hearts have to be for the sake of the loss. We need to be living for the loss. That's the title of my message this morning. There's four specific things that Paul mentions that will help us live for the loss in our passage this morning. Living for the lost comes as a result of remembering Jesus and his mission, verse 8. Releasing the word of God freely, verse 9. Remaining other-centered, verse 10. And fourthly, repeating his promises regularly, verse 11. First, we must remember Jesus and his mission. Look with me at verse 8 there where he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. In the, in the past seven verses, in chapter 2 here, Paul has given Timothy four commands so far. In, in, in verses 1 through 7, Paul tells Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, verse 1. Entrust, speaking of the gospel, to faithful men who are able to teach, verse 2. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, verse 3. Think over what I say, verse 7. 
These are present active imperatives, meaning Timothy is commanded to, to continually do these things. It's not just one time, but he's continually to, to be doing these things and if, in order for him to carry out the gospel legacy that Paul is passing on to him. He has to do these things. There's a fifth in our text today. There's only one command in these few verses that Paul gives Timothy in our text, and it is found here in verse 8 where he says, Remember Jesus Christ. That is a present active imperative, meaning it's a command for Timothy to keep keeping on remembering Jesus Christ. To have Jesus in the forefront of his mind always to be meditating on and be thinking about Jesus Christ. In these three words, remember Jesus Christ, we could, we could produce sermon after sermon after sermon remembering Jesus Christ. We could, we could go through the Gospels and we could spend years remembering Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that Paul tells us exactly what we're supposed to remember about Jesus Christ here. He boils it down really to two things. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ and his resurrection and his lineage. Remember Jesus Christ and his resurrection and that he's the offspring of David, that he has a lineage that leads him all the way back to the throne in Jerusalem, that he is the rightful heir to that throne for eternity as an offspring of David. First, we consider what Paul says about the resurrection. Why is it important for Timothy to remember Jesus Christ and his resurrection? Why is that supposed to be the focus of the message that he's sharing, the gospel message that he shares? There should be an emphasis, a focus on resurrection. Why? Why is that important? Because with no resurrection, there is no forgiveness. That's exactly why he says you must emphasize uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is, folks, a, a salvation issue. This is a non-negotiable. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Yes or no? It's a non-negotiable. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The salvation issue. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The resurrection is imperative to the gospel. And Paul explains why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. I already told you. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And again in verses, uh, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and 18, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes the most incredible declaration that has ever been made on planet Earth that Jesus is enough. The resurrection of Jesus is like the, the victory ceremony of the cross. It's like God is saying to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that, hey, my son is sufficient to, to not just cover your sins, but to remove them completely, to wash you white as snow. The resurrection makes the declaration to everyone that Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God was perfect in every way. There was no blemish in him and that his life is able to bring salvation to your life. Wow, is that amazing? That is the most amazing news. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus always does everything first. Do you know that? He always does everything first. And then that's why we're called followers of Jesus because he always does everything first. And so anything that you're doing, everything that you're doing, he's already done. And in fact, the book of Hebrews tells us he was tested in all things. He failed not one. He's done everything that he'll ever ask you to do and he's paved the road for you to victory, including going through the grave. He is the firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1.18 and Acts 26.23. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, 1 Corinthians 15.20. That is to say, no one has ever been resurrected before Jesus, but through him, we can all be resurrected to a living hope. Now you might go, hold on a second, what about Lazarus? We won't go into it in super detail, but what you need to know is Lazarus was not resurrected. He was resuscitated. He didn't come back in a different body, did he? Jesus, when he was resurrected, his body was transformed. He was not the same person. And in fact, his body was so different that he could disguise himself to the, to the two disciples on the road to Damascus, that he could walk through walls and, and visit those who were in the upper room the day he rose again from the dead. That is resurrection. And through Jesus Christ, we can all experience that. God has resuscitated many people, and we find many of those different people in the Bible. I don't know about you, but I believe that still happens today. I believe that it can happen at any point. But it's not resurrection. It's resuscitation. God giving the same body, breath again. He's God. He can do anything, including change you in the twinkling of an eye to transform you into the same glory as Jesus. Paul goes on and he tells us the second um, thing that's important relating to the gospel message that he preaches is that Timothy is, he, is to remember Jesus is the offspring of David. That is to say that that Jesus is the promised Messiah who will rule and reign for all of eternity and who will one day return and rule and reign here on earth with an iron scepter on a physical throne 
in Jerusalem. Jesus is the offspring of David. He has the legal rights to the throne of David as the adopted son of Joseph, and he has the blood rights through his mother Mary, who is also a descendant of David. When it says here that he is the offspring of David, which we know to relate to us as him being, listen, the Messiah, also the Son of God. The Son of God. Now, people in his culture, in that culture when Jesus existed and, and, and he called himself the Son of God or, or the, that phrase, you know, that, that, ty, that, that literally meant that he was God the Son. Did you know that? The title Son of God means I am God in the flesh. That's what he's proclaiming. That's why the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders had such a hang-up, which, well, that's not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons why they actually crucified Jesus, because they called him a blasphemer, because he called himself God. He is God. He's God in the flesh. He is the Son of God and God, God the Son. And he is also of the lineage of David, which means that when, when God was giving David that promise that, that his throne shall be established forever, he was thinking about Jesus. Paul mentions actually both of these things. This isn't the first time he says this. He mentions both of these things also in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He mentions the resurrection and the lineage of David. Listen to what he says here. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which is promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is this such a big deal to Paul that Jesus, that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and that he's of the offspring of David? Do you know what this, this declaration is here? He just told us that through the offspring of David he is man and through the resurrection he is God. He is the God-man. This is speaking of the nature and the character of Jesus, that he was fully God and fully man at the same time. And that was part of Paul's gospel message, that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. This is what we need to remember about Jesus on a daily basis. If we desire to be living for the lost, we remember Jesus and his resurrection and we remember um, his lineage back to David that he's coming again for his throne and he will sit on his throne on this earth. Secondly, we also need to release the word of God freely. Look at verse 9 where it says, For which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, by the, but the word of God is not bound. You know, Paul is in prison for his faith because he cannot cease speaking the Word of God, the Word of God just flowing out of his mouth. I love what D.L. Moody said. He said, when a man is filled with the Word of God, you cannot keep him still. If a man has got the Word, he must speak or die. I think Moody maybe came to that conclusion by reading this verse. 
2 Timothy 2.9, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul is saying, I'm suffering for the gospel's sake. It's because I cannot keep my mouth shut relating to the good news. It just free flows through me. I care so much about people and their lost state that I allow the word of God to flow through me and the consequences that come as a result. I don't care what happens to me. I'm a conduit for God. I'm going to allow him to flow through me and I'm going to allow the word of God to flow through me. And I will not cease speaking it. Paul spoke the word of God no matter what he was going through, no matter what situation he was in. And I want you to, I want you to know this, that he didn't do it obnoxiously. Do you know you can do that obnoxiously? You can share the word of God incredibly obnoxiously. And in fact, you can use the word of God, you can use the gospel to hurt somebody on purpose. Listen, you don't step in the way of what God is doing. You let the word of God free flow through you, but don't ever use the sword incorrectly to hurt somebody. It will convict, but it will also heal. And in fact, sometimes we get the brunt of the, the word of God flowing through us freely because it's convicting. And Paul is in this situation because he's, the word of God has been convicting to people and they'd rather just take him out of the way rather than deal with their own hearts. And that could be very well the case for you as you share the gospel. Does that mean that we stop sharing? No. We continue to allow the Lord, but not obnoxiously. Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. If people don't want to hear it, then stop talking. Let the Lord do the work. We don't convince anybody of anything. We're just messengers. You, you're literally glorified mailmen who bring the message from God to man. Here you go. This is what God says about you. No, convic- no convincing, no purposeful convicting. We just let the word do what it does. And you know what? It convicts and it heals. And sometimes we get only see the conviction part of it, but sometimes we get to see the healing part of it. And that's a beautiful thing. This is why the enemy from day one has, been, has had such an affront upon the word of God. Like why he, is, why he is trying to remove the word of God out of the world. Right? I mean, again, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, you know, what, what's interesting is the, the devil, Satan, said to Eve, did God really say? What is that? That is Satan beginning the war on the word of God. Listen, it's always been about Satan trying to shield us from the word of God because the word of God is active and alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God itself, with no explanation, will never return void. It is so powerful that the enemy is trying to silence the word of God from day one. But it can't be bound. That's what Paul's saying. It can be bound. 
Satan may use people and put the, fear, the, the spirit of fear that we were talking about in people to stop talking, but the word of God will never be bound. I don't care what tactic the enemy uses, the word of God will never be bound. And in, it's interesting because when persecution came on the early church, the word of God was not bound. In fact, it multiplied. It multiplied. People, people took the word of God, not just from that, 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 that Judea area, but they scattered everywhere as a result of persecution. God utilizing that persecution to move man, to deploy men and women into the world to share the word of God. It cannot be bound. So, you know, the word cannot be bound, but, but you can. And you can refuse to share the word of God. And, and, I, and, and we've all been in those situations where God has said to us, I want you to say this, and you're like, I'm not saying that. There's no way I'm telling that person that. And, and, and this is just a quick litmus test. It's not something that you can use, you know, thoughtlessly. But generally speaking, when I don't want to do something, it's the Lord. Yeah. And when I want to do something, it's usually not the Lord. Right? When I, don't, when I don't want to say something to somebody that I know I'm really supposed to say, I know that's God. But when I really want to say something to somebody, I generally know that that's not the Lord. And it all comes down to, you know, walking in the Spirit of God and understanding the Spirit of God in your life. He's the same Spirit in all of us, but He works differently in us. You know, for me, that's the way it works. And so I, when I don't want to do something, I, I, I tend to try and do it because I know it's the Lord. But, but it's a word for them, not for you. Why would you make it about you? I don't want to. I don't want to share that. The doctor comes in and he goes, "Man, I don't know. I'm not going to tell them they have cancer." Wouldn't you be upset? Now you you don't. You're good. 100% healthy. See you in like five years, or maybe not. You know, no. They they tell you the truth. And we're called to tell people the truth. Let the word of God flow freely through you. Thirdly, we need to remain other-centered. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This, to me, is Paul telling Timothy his modus operandi here. Timothy, this is how I live. This is my... You want to understand my mind? This is my mind in a nutshell. Everything I do is for the sake of the, the, of the elect. Everything I do is for the... And it's not the elect in terms of people who are saved. It's the elect of people who aren't saved. Everything I do is a result, a direct result for the lost. Uh, you know, the, the, the heart that Jesus has, has not, not really given me from the start, but the heart that Jesus has conformed and fashioned within me at this point in my life, everything I do is for the lost. Everything. Paul cares so much about people perishing that he's willing to suffer for it. He's willing to put his own life on the line because he understands that although his life may be taken, 
you know, eternity is at stake for other people. His eternity has been settled. He understands his end. He will be in heaven with the Lord one day. And yet, he views other people and says, but maybe not you. Maybe you won't be there, and so I'm willing to lay my life. Isn't that the heart of Jesus? I'm willing to lay down my life for you? Listen, if there is anything that should keep us up at night, it should be this, that people are departing every moment of every day without Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If there's anything that should keep you up at night, it should be the fact that there are people perishing every moment that goes by. Somebody slips into eternity. And it should bother us that there are many that are going, you know, to eternity without the right relationship with Jesus, through Jesus Christ. I think that should bother us intently, and I have to be honest with you, I wish it bothered me more. I wish that it burdened my heart so much more than it does. Because I know that's the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is for lost people. It's interesting that we, we cry injustice when we think about the, the world committing physical abortion. And it is horrendous and it is injustice. It's so wrong. And yet... All the while, the church commits spiritual abortion by an unwillingness to share the gospel with others. Think about that. Think about that for a second. How else will they hear unless somebody's sent? And it's not to say that all the onus is on you, because it's not. But some of it is. If you have the ability to share with somebody the Word of God that can change their eternal destination, then you should. It'd be like somebody sitting in a burning car and you do nothing about it, but you just stand there and watch them. That is wrong. At the same token, there's only so much that you can do. You know, the question that you have to ask yourself is, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Am I living for Christ? Am I on mission? Am I, do I have the heart of Christ? Do I even care that people are going to hell without Jesus? Sometimes, sometimes we just need to pull back because we're so inundated with everything in the world that we really need to just take a step back and ask ourselves, what am I doing? Like we're a hamster on a wheel most of the time. Right? It's the same routine every week. We do this, we do that, we do this, we do that. We become so to-do list orientated that we, we forget about our purpose. So we're like, oh, I'm check one, check two, check three, check one, check two, check three. And we do that over and over and over again. 
And it's important that we step back and just ask ourselves, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I on mission or am I totally off base? Listen, you can be saved. You can live a great life and you can, you know, you can experience all kinds of things. But the only thing that will matter in the end is what you've done with Jesus. You know, like C.T. Studd said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. All these experiences, all these different things, and they're not wrong to do. But they have to be in context to the bigger picture of what we're called to. I love what Spurgeon said about this. He said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Wow. To be other-centered means you care about others' needs above your own. Their physical needs and their spiritual needs. You care about people more than you care about yourself. That is the heart of Jesus, and that's why he came. Our primary goal in life should be to lead as many people to Christ as we can. Like that should be our mission statement as a person. I exist to lead as many people to Christ as I can. Don't misunderstand the statement. It is not about the number. It's about the purpose. That is Christ's mission statement for you to go out and make as many disciples as you can. And you know what? You get to share with them that there is an eternal glory awaiting them. You get to share the bad news with them that they're sinners destined for hell. But you get to share the good news with them that Jesus Christ came, he died, he rose again from the dead, and if you put your faith in him, there is an inheritance, uh, an eternal glory that awaits you. And Paul says in Romans 8, I think in verse 18 and on, he goes on to say that that eternal weight of glory is not to be compared with the, 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 the momentary sufferings that we have in this life. This brings us to our fourth and final motivator of living for the lost. It is in repeating his promises regularly. Look at verse 11. It says, this, uh, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot 
deny himself. Paul says this is a trustworthy statement. It's something that you can trust in, something that you should meditate on, something that you should know, and something that you should repeat to yourself over and over and over. It's trustworthy. Something to remind you about your mission. Something to remind you about why you're doing what you're doing and why you're allowing your, yourself to, you know, experience the things you're experiencing. I tell you what, that being, uh, being a Christian and being in ministry is so much harder than not being. Being in people's lives is so much harder than saying, I don't care, I don't have to deal with that. It is incredibly hard to, to, to be a follower of Jesus and continually be rejected by people. Again, even though he says, they, oh, don't worry, they're, they're rejecting me, not you. We feel it. You know, when we, when we feel the, the relationships that are broken because we call ourselves Christian, you know, th those kinds of things. There's something that we need to latch onto and hold onto to remind ourselves why we're doing what we're doing. And isn't it interesting that Paul says, here's, here's the trustworthy uh, a statement, Timothy. Here's something that you need to hold onto as you're ministering to people in this world. You need to keep this mindset, Timothy. And then he goes on to tell him, really, four, four promises uh, relating to, you know, his relationship with the Lord. And they are conditional promises. The word if is a conditional clause. It's literally saying the, the, the result will only happen if you, if you fulfill your part of the bargain here. So notice what he says here first. The first promise that we should repeat to ourselves is if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Now, off, just right off the cuff, you can say, oh, well, he's talking about salvation, and he's talking about, you know, if we've died with him, we've been crucified with Christ, and all of these kinds of things. That's not what he's saying. Although that applies, that is absolutely true. If you've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you, then you shall live with him forever. That's, that's the truth. But that's out of context. The context of this passage is, you go all the way back up to verse 1. What is he saying? He's saying being a Christian requires endurance and suffering. Being a Christian requires endurance and suffering. Timothy, if you die as a martyr, if you die for your faith, you will also live with him. It's a promise to be faithful to the Lord and to the message no matter what. That no matter what, he will be with the Lord. Jesus said, don't fear man who can only kill your body. Fear God who can kill your soul. You know, the, the, the mindset is this, that it doesn't matter what it costs me to, to live for Christ. Even if I'm a martyr, I will still live with him. You can't lose. You can't lose. 
You need to remind yourself over and over and over again that the reward is far greater than the cost. He goes on here. Secondly, in, in verse 12a, if we endure, we will also reign with him. The idea of this is perseverance. To persevere through hardship. You know, Paul gave three different examples in verses 1 through 7 of, of what it looks like to be strong in grace, to, to persevere through hardship and be gracious to people. And he used that of a good soldier. Right? And he used, and he used an athlete that has to persevere hardship in order to condition his body to be prepared to, to perform, right? And then finally, the farmer who has to persevere through all the different things that he has to go through in order to see the fruit come up. And it's, it's, you know, it's interesting that Jesus is, an Ill, Jesus is the fulfillment of all three of those. Jesus was the good soldier he is the, the, the perfect athlete. He is the perfect farmer. And he's calling us to do the same, to persevere like, like he has. If we endure to the end, we will also reign with him in eternity. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What does that mean? That means when, and I say when, hardship comes, when difficulty enters your life, that you don't run from the Lord, but that you persevere through it. And that is making a statement, not really so much to God, but to you. It's making a statement that in my endurance, I see my salvation. In my endurance, I know that I have salvation. The, the idea here isn't that salvation is obtained through endurance, but that endurance reveals the reality of your salvation. Because Jesus promised us tribulations. But then he goes on to say, he who endures to the end will be saved. So what's the evidence of your salvation? Your willingness to persevere through hardships. And I'm not talking about the ones you personally put yourself in. <laughs> we, we do that really well, don't we? Lord, look what I'm doing. He's like, man, that's not me, but I guess if you want to persevere, go for it, you know? Look what he says, the third thing he says. Here's a negative promise. If you deny me, if you deny him, he will also deny us. The word deny, it's in the future tense indicating if we ever deny him, he will also deny us. Jesus said this, himself plainly in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
You know, we must never, ever be ashamed of Jesus, no matter what. You must never, ever be ashamed of the Lord. Don't deny, don't deny the Lord for the temporary. You know, and, and most of us, you know, we sit here and we go, what does that even mean? Because we, we live in a culture where we don't understand. Again, you know, I draw your mind over to our brothers and sisters across the ocean who are in the 1040 window who experience persecution daily, people dying daily for their faith, unwilling to deny Christ. You know? It means that you're, you love him more than you love anything else. To never deny Jesus means he truly is your pursuit. And he says, if, if, I'm, if you acknowledge me in that way, I will by no means cast you out. I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. This brings us to our last promise here in verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. This is an incredible truth here that it's, it's one that, I, you know, honestly, it's hard for me to comprehend this as a human being. Because when people are unfaithful to me, it's easy for me to, to become unfaithful to them. It's easy for me to turn my feelings away from them. It's easy for me to shield myself and to, to say, well, they've done this, so now I will do this, right? Easy for us to do that. But God says, no matter what you do, I will remain faithful. That is awesome. To think that there's not a single thing that you could ever do to throw God off to the point where he would become unfaithful to you. Whoa. If you look up faithful in the, bio, in, in the dictionary, it should say God. It should just say God. And faithfulness is something that God himself cannot... Hey, I like that background music. Faithfulness is, is, is a character of God that he cannot deny. It's ingrained in his person. Just like God is love, God is faithful. He'll never, ever become unfaithful to you. Listen, I don't know, you know, we don't experience that in this world because people are unfaithful. And in fact, some of the most trusted people in our lives can be unfaithful. And it's such a sad thing to consider. And so it's hard for us to grasp that God will never, ever be unfaithful to me. But he won't. He won't. And I think it's important that we really focus on that. If you struggle with trust, if you struggle with, with you know, grabbing hold of that truth for yourself and knowing, like you're unsure about God, you're not sure about whether he's going to do what he said he's going to do, and you're kind of walking, you know, you're believing, but you're kind of not believing. You're kind of not, you're unsure. Then I would encourage you to spend 
just time watching the faithfulness of God through his word through people and really hone in on, is God faithful? And as you're reading the scriptures, just thinking about the faithfulness of God and what you'll find is he is incredibly faithful, far more faithful than you could ever even think. But I I do want to say this, that if you're here because of mistrust from somebody else, somebody in your life that should, you should have been able to trust, but you aren't able to trust, that that's not God. You know, I think of, and it just grieves my heart to think about the, the, the stuff coming out on Rabbi Zacharias. You know, and I don't know if you know what's gone on with him or not, but, you know, he was a wolf in sheep's clothes. And I hate to say that. I hate to say that he used his position of, of being who he was to elicit sexual favors from people. He used his ministry money to pay for all kinds of things. And it's so sad. And it grieves my heart. But listen, and there's many pastors that have done that. Isn't it good that you don't follow a man, but that you follow Jesus? Because when you think of that, like that rocks me, that Rabbi Zachariah has, has lived that lie. That rocks me in a way, but I think like, but why should it? Because he's not Jesus. Only Jesus is Jesus. And that's why I follow Jesus. And I don't follow a man. Because Jesus is faithful. And I want to encourage you, man, that, you know, don't ever let a human being derail you from your walk with the Lord. Ever. Don't you ever put a man up in such a place in your life that if he fails, which probably will, that you fail. Don't ever have that right relationship with, you know, the church and people and the Lord, knowing that he is the one you're following. He is faithful. He will not deny himself. We are to live for the lost And that's going to cost us much discomfort. may even cost you your life. It's the most challenging thing that you can do, Christian, is live for other people. Live for the lost. To give your life away for the sake of others. But that's the heart of Jesus. That was his mission. Therefore, that is our mission. That was his purpose. That means that is our purpose. Listen, he died and rose again from the dead, fully human and fully God. He gave us his word that can never be bound to freely share. He taught us to be other-centered and to repeat the promises of God often that we might be encouraged and motivated to press on. This is who we are called to be. This is who Paul is telling Timothy he needs to be. And I want to encourage you, he's telling you the same. Live for the lost. If you don't have a heart for the lost today, we're going to pray that God will change that. Because it, it, oftentimes it's not, it's, 
probably because we're not thinking about eternity in the lives of other people. We're not really, or our lives are, you know, we're kind of, we kind of guarded ourselves from that reality. But I, I, I want God to open up like a wound in our heart, a burden for lost people because that's our purpose, right? We can become so hardened and calloused because people are hard and calloused. But we should never let that get us off mission. I end with a quote from C.S. Lewis who said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ's. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. May we live our lives the same way Jesus did for the lost. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. For these few verses, Lord, and just the powerful proclamation that we find in them. Paul, in his last moments of life, delivering that which is most important, making that declaration to Timothy that everything that he does is for the sake of the elect, that they might obtain salvation through Christ Jesus. Father, we want our lives to be lived out in that same way. We pray this morning, God, for just a heart for the lost, Lord. Maybe for some of us, we have never even given it a thought. We ask you this morning, Lord, to open us up in a way that we would be bothered by people not knowing the Lord, that we would be bothered and grieved that people leave this world without knowing you, that we wouldn't shield our own hearts from the hurts and the discomfort that comes with, with seeking after those who are lost. But Father, that we would be willing to li even lay down our own lives as Jesus did for the sake of others. We ask you to fill us, Lord, today with your spirit. We can't do this on our own. This is really a byproduct of, of the fruit of the spirit, which is love. To love mankind so much, Lord, that it would hurt our hearts to think of people perishing. Paul had that kind of heart. He allowed you to shape and change him to be that kind of man to the point that he would even say, Lord, I'll give my life up for the sake of my own countrymen. And so will you give us that heart today? Lord, you see each one of us. You know where we are. You know where we stand. So we ask you to just supply what we need by your spirit today. Don't allow us to be comfortable, Lord, in these last moments as we await your return. May we be on mission. Give us opportunities, Lord, this week as we go into the world 
open, open up the window that we might be able to share the gospel with people. God, we don't want to misrepresent you. We don't want to speak when we're not to speak, Lord, but will you give us a sensitivity to your spirit? And then will you give us a boldness to do what's necessary in the moment to fulfill what it is that you're calling us to? So we just thank you for today, Lord. We're so grateful that you love us, that you sent your son Jesus for us, that we could be, we could be convicted and then healed. We could be dead and then made alive. We thank you for the gospel, Lord. We ask you to help us to stand strong and to just continue to seek you as we seek to fulfill all that you call us to in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.